You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 63 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, we will listen to biologist Rupert Sheldrake and journalist Mark Vernon. In this talk, Rupert and Mark discuss the unconscious, and they start from the perspective of Freud. About a hundred years ago, Sigmund Freud published a paper in which he described what he had discovered in his psychoanalytic patients, that there is an aspect of the human psyche of which individuals are typically profoundly unaware, namely the unconscious. His explorations set in motion a broad and fascinating path of investigation that gripped other key 20th century figures, such as Carl Jung, and with which we are still engaged today. If you want to hear more of Rupert Sheldrake and Mark Vernon, go to the Science Set Free podcast. I'll post links to this in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. Hello, my name's Mark Vernon, and I'm here with Rupert Sheldrake. Hello, Rupert. Hi, Mark. And this is another one of our Science Set Free podcast discussions. And Rupert, I wondered if we might talk today about the unconscious. Mm. And there's a bit of a hook for this um, in that it's um, 100 years since Freud published his famous paper on the unconscious. Mm. He thought that you need to have a notion of the unconscious because otherwise it's just very hard to account for, on the one hand, things like dreams, the content of which um, often feels completely unrelated to the part of yourself that you know consciously. Um, also in terms of um, neurotic behaviour. He, he was also very interested in hypnosis and thought that uh, you can only really account for hypnotic phenomena um, by thinking that something goes into the unconscious and then through suggestion pops up again. Mm. Um, and uh, so he puts together this paper that tries to really sort of give it shape um, and describe the processes and mechanisms that we can infer go on um, in the unconscious part of ourselves. Mm. Um I mean, is this broadly an idea that you've encountered in your own work and sort of find useful or helpful? Well, yes. I mean, I was very influenced by Freud myself, actually. When I was about 17, I read The Psychopathology of Everyday Life by Freud, uh, which I found enormously illuminating, because suddenly I, I noticed things that people were doing which were showing things about unconscious processes in their minds that were coming out in ways of which they were unconscious. Um, verbal tics, slips of the tongue, all that kind of thing. Um, so I became very intrigued by this a long time ago, actually. Um, and I read quite a lot of Freud, and I found him very clear, very persuasive. Um, I then got rather disillusioned because it always seemed too reductive and when I discovered Jung and, and this broader view of the unconscious uh, which is collective not just personal it seemed to me a much more satisfactory way of thinking about it because um, you've got a much wider aspect of the mind um, but the whole concept is I think essential and I think the reason that it came as a shocking revelation to start with is because of this very false view of consciousness that we'd had in, in Western Europe since the 17th century. When Descartes created his famous dualism of the conscious mind or spirit versus 
the machinery of the body and of nature. All of nature is inanimate, unconscious, and mechanical, including animals and plants and human bodies. Um, the realm of consciousness is God, angels, and the human conscious mind, and the rest is just machinery, and the two interact in a small region of the brain. It creates the idea that the mind is entirely conscious, rational, logical, and clear, uh, and everything else is totally mechanical. Well, ever since Descartes, people had to reinvent the unconscious. Um, there was an 18th century or 19th century philosopher called Kairos who came up with the idea. So, as you say, there were a lot of people who came up with it before Freud. But we needed this idea because of a completely false view of consciousness as being just about clear, bright, rational minds. Now, in before Descartes, no one thought that because the view of the soul that was predominant in the Middle Ages was that the rational intellectual soul in humans is embedded in the animal soul, which gives us our animal nature and our emotions and the way our senses and our instincts work. And that's embedded in the vegetative soul, which gives our body its form and shape. So the conscious mind was only a very small part of a much larger psychic system, which was largely unconscious. So in a sense, there's a long set of ancestors of Freud's idea, but I agree, he did crystallise it and bring it into clear uh, discussion and put it, because he writes so clearly, he made, he made the concept at least relatively clear. Yeah, he sort of puts up a, a he describes the dynamics in the, of the unconscious that you could sort of investigate and test a bit. Yes. Um, but I agree, his, his ideas go back. One of, the, one of the most interesting examples of that, actually, that I recently was reading about was um, the Epicureans, um, who are sometimes known as the ancient Greek kind of materialists and, and even atheists, um, which I think is a bit of a, a misdescription, actually. But um, in, uh, in On the Nature of Things, Lucretius, the Latin poet, who is one of the most important Epicureans, um, he describes... Um, the unconscious, and also how to, um, as a kind of therapy for investigating your own unconscious, which requires confessing to a friend, someone you trust, um, and then and seeing where the discrepancies lie and so on, and then working on the conflicts, to use a more Freudian term, in order to discover a greater part of yourself. So mm. it really is, even a therapy that um, is sort of quite recognisable uh, goes all the way back as well. Mm. I agree with you about Freud as well, that I think there's always this tension in Freud um, between the sort of reductive pull um, that wants to make things scientific, serious mm. science, as he calls it in his paper on the unconscious, as if mm. everything else is sort of unserious. Mm. Um, uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's very fascinating what he can't ignore as well in the evidence in front of him, particularly with his uh, patients. So, for example, he discovers that one of the qualities of the, un the unconscious is that it's timeless. It has a kind of eternalness to it, that um, something that happened 50 years ago that is uh, held um, in un unconscious memory can be as, as, uh, as full of energy and impact and affect um, as, as if it happened just you know, two minutes ago. Um, and that kind of notion that there's a kind of eternal quality in our psyche again, takes us back to older notions around the soul and so on and mm. um, things he can't quite sort of put down in his you know, tendency to be a bit reductive. Yes. Well, I think the, the tendency to be reductive went further. I mean, Jung, who had a much broader view of the unconscious than Freud because of this collective memory aspect, um, still tended to be reductive because he, 
he thought that spiritual experiences were aspects of the unconscious, at least some of his writings suggest that. And certainly Freud did. You know, if someone has an experience of God, uh, instead of it being superconscious, so transcending the normal realm of our consciousness into some vastly larger conscious region, it's some kind of primitive regression to early childhood, a kind of oceanic feeling of connection with the mother or something. So um, I think Freudians who have tended to have a somewhat atheistic streak, uh, Freud himself had a strong atheistic side, um, Mm. have tried to get rid of the entire spiritual realm Mm. by sort of taking it from a level that normally seen, and I think rightly seen as, beyond or above our normal level of consciousness and trying to stuff it into the kind of basement of the unconscious and, and, and reduce it. I think that's, I, mean, I do think that's basically right, that Freud's instincts were in that direction. And yet still, I, um, uh, in, in the essay that he writes, there are these kind of aspects where that reductive approach doesn't quite hold together what he sees. So, for example, in the paper, he, he has this, this passing comment about how um, it's a strange phenomena, but that unconscious seems to be able to speak to unconscious. And this is a crucial part of psychoanalysis, the idea that you as a therapist are not just listening to what the client is saying at the surface level, but are trying to receive, as it were, um, the hints and nudges and, and messages from their unconscious that is causing them so much problem. And this feeds into your unconscious and uh, through the countertransference, as it's called. And um, if you are trained to work with that, then you can sort of pick it up and try and, and get some sense of what's going on. Um, so this notion that an unconscious can speak to another unconscious seems to counteract the idea that my unconscious is just a sort of regression back to infantile states, as if I'm a sort of isolated individual. But he, he, he makes this comment, he says, you know, the fact that the unconscious seems to be able to speak to another unconscious is a remarkable fact of which we can give no account at the moment. Um, he sort of parks these, uh, mm. these problems that don't quite fit. Um, but I think that it directly speaks to, you know, what Jung picked up with the notion of a collective uh, unconscious, but also what you're saying of a sort of super consciousness as well. Um, that uh, our our conscious awareness is actually embedded, um, I think, partly in a in a in a regressed, difficult side of ourselves, but also um, in a, a much more expansive and flourishing um, side of consciousness, which goes beyond us into what people you know have associated with perhaps angels and the divine. Yes. Well, I think for me it makes most sense to see our normal conscious mind as sort of bit in between these two. And it's a very traditional view as well. I mean, in the Middle Ages, they thought that beyond the level of our conscious mind were indeed the angels and the divine realm, the spiritual realm. And as it were, below it was the, our animal nature and our rooting in the whole natural world. And they didn't think that was bad. I mean, after all, in Christian theology, where Jesus is the incarnation of God, takes on human nature. It deifies human nature. So it wasn't that they would say, like the Gnostics or some of the Platonists, that body's bad, spirit's good. Um, (coughs) But it does mean that there's this different levels of consciousness um, above and below our normal one. And indeed, our own minds can move between different levels. And we have moments when we're raised to sublime heights through listening to beautiful music or in mystical experiences and 
there's times when our minds are preoccupied with entirely bodily matters like you know delicious food lust etc uh, where um, we're dealing with a kind of instinctive level of the consciousness which is really in some way habits i mean habits are unconscious when you become uh, when anything becomes habitual it becomes unconscious it's the nature of consciousness to be do i think to deal with choice and when you've got a habit and you don't need to think about it it doesn't need to be conscious like when i'm speaking english i don't have to search carefully for every word because my mind automatically finds the right words to express my thoughts if i'm speaking urdu which is rather rusty now and my command of vocabulary is rather limited i have to search for the word and it's much more conscious um because i don't know it so well and like when you're learning to ride a bicycle you're consciously trying to balance and push down your foot on the pedals and people tell you what to do etc once you've learned you don't think about it you can talk to someone as you cycle along and think about something else or listen to music and it happens automatically so as you're talking i'm thinking about uh, morphic fields and uh, your work in that area mm. is is that linked to or can it be linked to um, a dynamic unconscious? Is a morphic field another way of conceptualising what uh, can be referred to as the unconscious? Yes. I mean, morphic fields are, are fields or forms of habit. They're forms of patterns of activity that happen habitually. Um, and, you know, we're creatures of habit. The great majority of our mental life is indeed unconscious because it's habitual. And... So I would indeed see that most of what we do, most of our actions, most of the things we've learned, the skills we've learned, are skills precisely because they've become unconscious habits. Like when I sit down to play the piano, I just see the music in front of me, and without thinking about it, I can just look at the music and I play the notes. I'm not thinking about it. When I was learning the piano, I had to say, well, that's a C and that's an F and that sort of thing. But So I think a huge amount of just our mental and our bodily skills, in fact, practically all, are unconscious because they're habitual. And I would say that part of what Freud's talking about um, as you know, neurotic aspects of the unconscious, these are like unconscious emotional memories or unconscious habits of reacting to other people or responding to situations that trigger emotions, etc. Yeah, and I, when you when you talk about memory there, I think this perhaps takes us to where the debate is now. Um, my sense is that um, 100 years you know, on from 1915, when, Con- when Freud published his paper, there was a, a big move towards behaviourism that became deeply uninterested in, in the unconscious, thought it was you know, unverifiable and all that. Um, but that's changing now, and it's, it's largely, I think, neuroscience, actually, which has brought it back onto the agenda, because it's very, very clear that um, it's only a tiny fraction of what's going on inside the brain that we're conscious of. Mm. Um, but the question is, I suppose now, um, is is Freud's dynamic notion of the unconscious um, the way to go? An unconscious that has a kind of life of its own, a, a, a complex and sophisticated life of its own? Or is there something um, more perhaps a sort of stupid, less dynamic, um, what sometimes is referred to as the subliminal? Um, and I, a lot of the debate, as far as I can see, depends upon how you understand memory in this. So there's one way of thinking about um, the unconscious, which is just to say it's a kind of memory. You know, so when you're talking about learning the piano, you're, as it were, putting down body memory 
on how to to play the notes. But mm. kind of once it's there, it's fairly static um, and uh, doesn't spring back to haunt you in strange ways, uh, as if it's got a life of its own during the day. Um, whereas there was an, there's another side um, of the current debate, which is saying, no, 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 although Freud wasn't right in all the details, um, the idea that the, the unconscious can do things to memories and affect to feelings through mechanisms of displacement and condensation, as Freud called them, um, that is important to hold on to. It's not just, as it were, fairly static, kind of laid-down memory, um, but there's actually you know, a kind of dynamic life in the unconscious itself. And people point to things like uh, blind sight, you know, this curious phenomena where people consciously don't see what's in the room Mm. and yet can navigate across the room without bumping into objects on the way. And they'll swear, and they are blind, and yet um, there's a kind of uh, unconscious process going on that's dynamic, enables them to navigate um, across the room. And things like paraphrasia, where people um, forget words and yet will reach for words that are symbolically connected to the word that somehow they've forgotten. Yes. Um, so that, that, that suggests there are mechanisms like Freud's displacement and condensation which go on on the unconscious. Um, so it's not just a kind of dead um, notion, the unconscious, but is something that has these qualities of aliveness, um, like conscious life. Well, morphic fields would would have that property, or morphic fields and structures of activity which are dominated by attractors, which provide a goal or telos of each field, the, the direction it's pulled towards. So they work on the basis of attractors that gives them a kind of dynamism, they're moving towards some goal. So insofar as you have repressed habits, or at least unconscious habits, um, unconscious patterns within uh, it, it within the unconscious mind it, it does give a kind of dynamism and this comes up not just with personal habits and not just collective memories but also family fields as in family constellation therapy um, where somebody in a family may take up the role of similar to that of someone in a previous generation who committed suicide or who was expelled from the family or who was shamed or something. And someone in the present family may, as it were, unconsciously enter some kind of resonance with that deceased and often forgotten ancestor and start acting out what they did, becoming suicidal, depressed or alienating everyone in the family for reasons that are not clear to them or anyone else. And this is not to do with the necessarily the dynamics of their own mind somewhere inside their brain, but to do with a field within of which they're part, a, a memory within a field, which gives a kind of dynamic of following this particular person in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's very striking uh, when you read about people discovering about their ancestors or um, there's that television programme, Who Do You Think You Are? Mm. And I always find it, it's really striking when someone who lives in the 21st century discovers that an ancestor in the 19th century you know lived a very difficult life or um, you know had to struggle in various respects or suffered some kind of great loss and it's received not just as a kind of fact but has enormous impact upon people it, it creates a great upsurge of affect um, and the fact that it has that sort of response strikes me as suggesting that there is some kind of real link 
perhaps through a collective unconscious, mm. um, some kind of link of which Family Constellations, I'm sure, picks up on as well. Yes. Um, and that's that's. It seems to me that's the only way to explain why it has such a tremendous impact. You know, whereas when I hear about someone else's ancestor, um, it becomes part of history and yes. rather than part of my personal psychic life, you might say. Yes. Well, of course, finding the, these affects and, and is, is something that's not been lost on the advertising industry. And you know, one of the I read a fascinating book called *The Culture Code* by Clotilde Rapaille. It's a French Freudian psychoanalyst who went to the United States and became a consultant for the advertising industry. And what his aim there is to find out deeply repressed parts of people's childhood memories that are quite common in the American culture and see how you can play on those to sell products. I mean, it's entirely cynical in that sense. I mean, he gives several examples. Um, one of them was the, those retro-designed Chevrolet cars. He found a lot of people in America in middle age had... Uh, their first sexual encounters were in the backs of cars, you know, with girlfriends or boyfriends. And, and these kind of rather retro, the cars that were not retro at the time they were young, have for them a kind of tremendous sort of unconscious charge of sort of eroticism. So they bring back these, the sh- retro Chevrolet, I forgot what it's called, but it looks like an old-style car. And... Germans, when they saw this car, were appalled. For them, you know, car means superb engineering. These stuff, the engineering was terrible. And, um, and, and yet they sold really well. He was right. Then when he was asked to do an advert for toilet paper, um, the company who'd employed him uh, thought that the best way to, was to concentrate on softness, hygiene, etc., but he then got a lot of Americans in a focus group, regressed them to childhood, early childhood, etc. And he came up with a completely different key word for their marketing campaign, independence. And they looked baffled. Why? And it turns out he discovered that Americans are obsessed with toilet training. They, American babies or young children are toilet trained months earlier than Europeans or people in the rest of the world. Um, and for, for American children, when they're toilet trained, what it means is that at a very early age, they can go into a bathroom, a lavatory, and lock the door, and they have a space that's entirely private, which they've never had before, and is not that normal for a child to be in a state of complete isolation, privacy, etc. And it creates... So learning to use toilet paper, for many Americans, is associated with this deep sense. It's their first step towards independence... So he, he suggested an advertising campaign that made lavatories look wonderfully independent, you know, screens of pictures of them with televisions in them, sound systems. We are in your own world. And this then associated the toilet paper with a sense of independence. So um, it's the advertising industry, unfortunately, it does play upon these things to highly effective uh, commercial uh, for the sense of gain. And but Clotilde Rapai's book is particularly fascinating because, as a Freudian psychoanalyst, he actually set out, was commissioned to find out how to give a new twist to these advertising campaigns. Well, the final one, he said that for anyone to become president of the United States, um, the archetype for the president of the United States, what's the key word? And the key word he came up with is Moses that the whole mythology of the United States, for whites and blacks, is 
going out of bondage for the whites of oppression in Europe, you know, moving uh, across the wilderness of the ocean to the promised land, and you know, and and for the blacks being literally enslaved and moving out of slavery into freedom. This whole thing is the journey of the this Old Testament journey of the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. And Moses is the leader for this great American myth, but Moses never actually makes it to the promised land. He's the lead them through the wilderness. He's never quite there, but he's always pointing. It's never they've never quite make it to the promised land. But the whole journey is aiming that way, and so. Uh, that's why he thinks that for an American to become president, they have to tap into this national archetype. And Obama did that brilliantly, because he was schooled in a black church in Chicago. This thing of, yes, we can, and this sense of liberation. I mean, the rhetoric was perfect. Most Democrats aren't as good at it, good at it as Republicans who have a deeper sense of these archetypes. Um, but, you know, this, this, this discussion of Freud and archetypes is not just about personal psychotherapy and interpreting the odd dream. This is something which plays itself out in politics, in advertising and in commerce, and affects all our lives. Yeah, I mean, the, so the, yeah, the Jung, Jungian notion of archetypes, I'm sure that's absolutely right. I mean, the one that springs to my mind that I've read about is um, uh, around the brand Nike, um, which, of course, is uh, the name given to the ancient god of victory. Yes. Um, but I, I guess most people don't know that, explicitly know that association, and yet, I think there's some sense in which the brand invokes um, this uh, this force, this desire for victory, um, and even better when it drops the words and just has the swoosh. Yes. Um, you know, this in a way, it's more directly um, a channel, you might say, for um, for this unconscious uh, collective archetype. Um, and in fact, people at Nike, I've read case studies, um, are quite aware of this and um, are very careful with how um, they negotiate an encounter with the archetype because Nike has also suffered from hubris um, in its brand. So there was a very famous uh, case when um, it was exposed that um, it had been using a lot of uh, child labour to make its products. Um, and uh, when they tried to, uh, when they came to think about this and to how they could um, restore the brand, um, they realised that they had to go through some kind of process of realising the hubris that too close an identification with victory, as if victory was the only thing that was possible. To use another Jungian phrase, they had to be able to encounter their shadow side. And it was integrating the two together um, that actually helped them to deepen and restore the brand. Um, yes. So th these ideas are quite powerful, and I think even quite consciously. I don't know whether, um, Mo whether Moses was on Obama's mind when he said, yes, you can, but that's, it's a brilliant example. But I think certainly in, in marketing, there are people who do think about that quite explicitly. Yes. Yeah. So I think this is a, the fact we've had this discussion with so many aspects who just shows how fertile Freud's paper was and bringing this into debate. And it's not as if a hundred years of digesting these ideas has reached the end of the road. In fact, it feels as if we're just beginning, really, to, to have a, a deeper understanding of aspects of the unconscious mind. Yeah, and to give the last nod to Freud, uh, I think that really comes through in his writing, actually. He is very, very clear, and there are these pulls which we've talked about, but he is also really an open thinker. Um, he's very, very clear when this is just a suggestion, this is a hint, we don't know. So they're great launch pads for speculation and thought and investigation as well. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Mark.
On naturalboyalchemist.com, there is also a section where I post some essays. So have a look at that if you are interested. I think I am a far better writer than speaker. To close this episode, I will play a track by Car Seat Headrest called Mod Gone. The track is from the album Monomania. I discovered this band while doing this podcast, and since then they have actually managed to finally get a record deal, which makes me happy knowing I have a good ear for good music, in my opinion anyway. Check out their music at carseatheadrest.bandcamp.com. Freedom is in the mind. It's not to be so